Philemon is uh, one of just a handful of books of the Bible. That's one chapter. So I'm going to, you know, repeatedly probably say, you know, Philemon chapter 1, verse 3 or whatever. Um, you know, it's just to put us in context to where we are. But um, the, uh, the, the fact that it's one chapter is due uh, to its other significance in that uh, this is a personal letter from Paul to Philemon. Um, he includes in it the statement that it should be, uh, you know, it has an, uh, an application to the whole church. But, um, you know, his appeal in this letter is regarding one individual and his relationship with another individual. Um, you know, the long and short of the story, Onesimus is a slave who has run away. And um, from what Paul says in the letter, seems to have also stolen uh, money, perhaps, from uh, Philemon. Paul talks about how he, you know, any other debt incurred should be put on his account. Um, you know, I'm not really spoiling this story. It, it, this is one of those lessons that comes from the scripture that um, it's better to know the backstory. It's better to know the context as you start into the letter, because really the doctrine is so deep about forgiveness. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't uh, grasp that. They, they accept forgiveness in their beginning of their relationship with the Lord, but they don't understand that our God is you know, the God of forgiveness. His life, his existence is grace and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, that's the entirety of salvation. And so uh, here you have a tremendous debt that is owed uh, between one person and another person. And the message is being presented by Paul to forgive You've got to have this heart of forgiveness. And, and the root of the thing is, you know, if you, if you are a Christian, that needs to be your person. It needs to be who you are, that you're a gracious and you're a forgiving person, that you have it in your heart, that you are ready, right? There's times to hold people accountable. There are times, but those should be more the situations where we have to pray about what do I do in this situation? You know, the general, I, I, I had a situation uh, years ago, uh, uh, a young person that was uh, part of uh, our fellowship and we were discipling, been very, very involved uh, with their life and they kept stealing things of very high value. And, um, you know, people were gracious and forgiving. And then it came down to... Um, they did it at work, and it was hundreds of dollars of property in uh, in value, and it was the sort of thing where you know people wanted to like extend forgiveness and grace there also, and you know I had to make the point with everyone involved that look, as much as we'd like to do this, the law says we can't, and 
at what point are they going to learn? <laughs> I mean, it's just this isn't the first occasion. This is, you know, we, uh, the Lord has presented all these opportunities for grace and forgiveness and learning, and, and clearly they're not learning the process. So it comes time where it's necessary. You know, I, I don't, you know, say that to make us uncomfortable at all. I really want us to grasp that point that the, the stronger identity of the Christian should be grace and forgiveness, and it comes down to that you know there there are moments where you have to hold accountable where we have to do, you know do what's right you have to you know allow for punishment uh, in the situation but those you know for the christian those should be the exceptions why because we live under grace constantly if we don't have that clearly in focus for ourselves uh, we're missing so much of our relationship not even like how I might treat you or you treat me. We're missing so much of our relationship with Christ every day. Grace, grace, grace is being extended constantly. And and so we're called to it. Uh, now, it, it is uh, very possible uh, to view this as Paul manipulating Philemon. And you're going to run into commentaries that really painted in that light okay all right how many of us in the room have visited a chiropractor right many of us in the room have visited a chiropractor did they manipulate you right okay why because you were in the wrong shape (laughs) and he needed to be put in the right shape right they manipulate what's out of place into the proper place. And that's really what Paul is doing. So if there be any manipulation, and we're going to dwell on that right here, you've got a master spiritual chiropractor here who's got Philemon in his hands, and, and he's adjusting the man to where he should be. You know, he's he's... He's putting pressure, right? That, that's the old school method uh, of chiropractic is, is bring the joint to its maximum extension and then push it beyond so that it pops into place. Uh, so it is in this circumstance. You know, I know the new school methods of warmth and relaxation and softening and then, you know, gentle pliability causes it to slide right into place, you know, good, wonderful. If you've got time for that, you know what I'm saying? Uh, if you've got the guy who wants to handle it that way, John's dad uh, was a chiropractor for years and we went to see him and uh, old school method, just bring your, snap, there you go, be on your way. You know, it, it's necessary sometimes, isn't it? Spiritually to be brought to the brink and then pushed a little further to get, to where you're supposed to be. Okay? So, Philemon, Paul, here, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay, now wait a minute. You've heard it so many times as a Christian who studied the writings of Paul that you're like, yeah, standard opening. Ah, but we're talking about from the very beginning he's going to be addressing a man who is a slave. 
So he needs to, in the beginning, start painting right the similarities. I'm a prisoner, Paul says. <laughs> you know, Philemon, uh, how I'm a prisoner? You know, he's going to get to like Onesimus is a prisoner, you know, a servant in your household. So immediately in the address, he starts painting these parallels between himself and Philemon and Onesimus in these situations. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, right? You say, oh, laying it on thick, right in the beginning. Yes, our beloved friend. <laughs> Dear. Oh, he's so close. So our hearts are bound. This is literally what he's doing. But there's a sincerity in it also. It, it isn't just gross manipulation. Now, this next mark, part might be, right? Our fellow laborer to the beloved Abthea. His wife, right? You want to win the husband's ear over? <laughs> Make sure you address the wife also. You know, she's going to have a tender heart in the situation and make sure he hears it that way. Okay? You know, men sometimes only view things in a very rigid black and white way. And it takes the gentle, tender heart. Right? The two shall be one flesh. There is a balance to this that's necessary. So he addresses Apphia also. Our Chippus, our fellow soldier, to the church in your house. So there is a body of Christ. The church has begun to be persecuted. And they have, uh, and I want to be clear about this, gone from corporate worship in large gatherings to meeting in homes. So when you run into people that try to imply that the only real church, uh, I love home churches. I think they're great. I encourage them. They should exist. I'm not speaking against them in any way, but there are a few that have the mindset that corporate churches are improper. Okay. The entire body of Christ was meeting daily in the temple and being taught the apostles' doctrine by the apostles. There was corporate gathering of the church. There was corporate leadership of the church. There was corporate financing of the church until the persecution grew so intense that they scattered and moved into homes. And so now this is a home fellowship. So this is a prominent Christian leader who's serving at least to a minor degree, maybe in a large degree, as church oversight. He helps manage and facilitate church gatherings in his home. And there's a body of Christians that look to Philemon and Apphia and the members of this household as being directly associated with church. So... When they behave well, those that look at them as being so directly integrated and associated with church say in their hearts and minds, that's what church is about. And when they misbehave, they say the same thing. Oh, that's what church is about. So the reputation of Christ and the reputation of Christianity and the reputation of the church hangs at least to some degree in this letter, in this context 
upon Philemon. Keep that in mind when we conduct ourselves. And people know you are associated with Christ. You do have a reflection upon your Lord and upon your Master. So here, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the twins of Paul's writing, grace and peace, inseparable, as Paul writes to the people that he addresses. You're not going to know the peace of God. You're not going to know the peace that the world is longing for unless you know the grace of God. Again, central to this letter, central to this message. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. In context, might sound like and feel like a manipulation. I'm always praying for you, Philemon. Except Paul was always praying for him. We know from Paul's example and Paul's letters that he was a man that was constant in prayer. Constant. The man who oversaw the translation of the King James Bible, when he began the project, uh, would start his morning with four hours of prayer. No joke. Well documented every day. Four hours of prayer. And then at 5 a.m., he would start teaching his first class in Hebrew. And that often rolled into his class in Greek at 8 o'clock. <laughs> and he continued through the day preaching sermons and overseeing the translation of the Bible and ended his day in prayer and awoke the next morning, usually around 1 a.m., and started praying again and started with four hours of prayer and started teaching his Greek and his Hebrew classes and continued every day, except for the Sabbath when he would worship the Lord. As his vision began to fail and he could no longer read as well as he was, you know, had to be broad daylight you know, where he could sit out under sunlight and read. He started praying eight hours a day and then taught his classes and worked on translation. And when his vision completely failed, he literally prayed for 12 hours a day and taught classes and worked on the translation. What we have in our hands as King James and New King James is the result of a man who was incredibly dedicated to prayer, to prayer. When Paul says, I'm continuously praying, we know historically these men prayed like you and I can't imagine. Uh, that is one of the first signs of men that will be used by God. They become people of prayer can't encourage you enough. Now you'll find it incredibly difficult, right? The moment you say, I'm going to start in the morning, I'm just going to, I'm just going to start with the small chunk that I can handle. I'm at 15 minutes. I'm going to get up and I'm going to start my day. I'm just going to make sure I start in prayer. So I'm going to start with 15 minutes and your world will explode. 
for those 15 minutes, right? Kids will throw up. Cats will throw up. Phones will ring. Kids will need diaper changes. Cars will break down. It'll be insane, right? Chuck Smith points out in his booklet, right, The Effective Prayer Life, that according to the scripture, prayer is a weapon. You know, if uh, we put two men together to fight one another, their fight would be based entirely upon two things, strength and skill. Strength and skill. Have they been trained as a fighter? Do they have certain skills? Are they capable of handling themselves? And then if they both have equal strengths, you know, how, or they both have equal skills, how strong are they? So your skill in a fight and your strength in a fight until a weapon is introduced. Right? If equal skill and equal strength meet equal skill and equal strength, you're going to just see sort of a back and forth melee until someone pulls out a knife. If a knife comes out in the fight, both parties are only going to be concerned with controlling the knife. Punch me in the head as much as you want. I can't let go of this knife because the knife is deadly. So it is with prayer. You've worked your way through whatever challenges in life and you've figured out as a Christian how to stand on your feet and to hold your own and be consistent and not fall apart and you're doing okay. And now you've decided you're going to become a person of prayer. Your enemy's not going to let that slide. He's going to do everything he can to control prayer. Many of us make attempts at it and abandon it because of the fight that's associated with it. Pray that prayer is protected. When you go to prayer, you got to start praying about your prayer time so that you're able to continue in prayer uninterrupted. You can still find Chuck Smith's book, PastorChuck.com, WordForTheDay.com, several other places available as PDF files, free for download, right? Effective prayer life. Very much encourage you to read that. You can order paper copies if you're not a electronic reader and you want the book in your hand, like, you know, 80% of the people who read want the book in their hand. You can still order that. Uh, it will teach you things about prayer that are really quite remarkable. Uh, one simple thing Chuck recommends, if you're not going to get the book and read it, is when you go to prayer, take a distraction notebook with you. So that when you get in there and you think, oh, I've got to call so-and-so, just write that down. <laughs> Don't leave prayer and go call them. Write it down. Oh. I need to put air in my tires. Just write that down and do that later. Oh, I mean, if you're going to shut the stove off, go shut the stove off. But you know what I'm saying? The distractions that come, the things you can just quickly jot down, what you'll discover, I guarantee you, is that if you work at isolating prayer, concentrating on prayer, making it strong, the Lord will also protect it and you will develop a prayer time. 15 minutes won't be long enough. Half hour, hour, 
you'll move through these opportunities. Paul says, I am constantly praying for you. We know from the scripture that's true. Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. You know, he probably emphasized that last portion, right? Toward all the saints, you know, all of them, you know, the free ones and the slaves toward all the saints. It is that he has heard of Philemon. He's not making this up. This is a real reaction to who this man is. He has a love for the saints. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Start doing some literal applications in regard to you You know what the punchline is already, right? Onesimus was Philemon's slave. He's run away and probably taken money. And now Paul is going to encourage him to not only take him back, but maybe even set him free. And the process, why? Because he's a Christian. He's a fellow believer now. So as you're reading all of these things, don't view so much as manipulation. View as this is a central doctrine. What Paul is saying, you're a Christian Philemon. Therefore, these behaviors have to be part of your person. They have to be central to who you are and what you're doing. He's holding back. Onesimus name he's holding back the circumstances he's building the doctrine on the front end so that when he delivers the punchline he's got to view it through the lens of what he's established here this is your relationship with the Lord therefore you've got to behave this way for we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you Brother, you're, you're like a cool drink of water on a hot day. You just bring so much refreshment to the saints. You're just known as being a wonderful person. So I don't want you to act out of character when we get to the point where we tell you that Onesimus is now a believer. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, uh, yeah, he's going to talk about the authority he has in the situation. But Paul very much understands what Jesus taught, what Peter reiterated about how as leaders in the church, they're not to lord over people. This is one of the things that the Lord himself is really upset about. In Christianity, okay, we hear it on two occasions. One of those occasions is actually in the book of Revelation as he addresses the seven churches and he says, I also hate. When Jesus Christ says he's hating something, you want to pay attention. The God of love says, I hate this. You, that should cause a big stir. Because that's, that's mostly outside his character. What, what, what does he hate? What would he hate? He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
Okay, uh, there's a lot of speculation about what is meant by the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and there is a false teaching that mostly came out of Roman Catholicism that there was this individual known as Nicol who had a group of followers, and the Nicolaitans, uh, Jesus hated them and what they were doing and their doctrine, and so he was addressing that directly. That's false. Okay, There is no historic evidence of any individual known as Nicol that had influence over the church, that had gathered a group of people to themselves. That, that was literally created as a reaction to what we understand Nicolaitan to be. It's a compound word. You have surely heard the name Nike. And many of us know that in the Greek terminology, that was the victor or the conqueror, and the one who was the ruler. Okay, That's why Nike brand chose that emblem and that name for themselves. Victor, ruler, conqueror is the idea there. Nicol is the word that we get Nike from. Laetin, right? Nicol, laetin is where we get the word lay people from. Those who have victory or lordship over the lay people, right? <clears throat> Priesthood over lay people. Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Why? Why does he hate this idea of priesthood, victor, ruler over lay people? Because he abolished priesthood. He tore the veil from top to bottom out of the way to get rid of the priesthood. The man-made priesthood. Why? Because he's the high priest. Everybody has equal access now. You can go straight in to the presence of the Lord. You can as much as I can. You know, Will doesn't have any greater access than any other person. We, we all, you know, Billy Graham didn't have any, the Pope does not have any greater access than anybody else. Jesus, that was Jesus' intention, right? Why die on the cross? If, if we're just going to, stitch the veil back together and we're just going to put crowns on top of priests' heads and put them all back into their order and their institutions, Jesus came and removed all of that. He took it out of the way so we could have free access to his presence. So all of his followers very much reflect that mannerism of I don't rule over you. Jesus saying, call no man on earth your spiritual father. Right? Uh, Peter uh, admonishing us as shepherds in the body of Christ to not lord our authority over others. Here, Paul saying, I could command you, and he's going to explain why, but I'm not going to abuse my position. You're going to have to make up your own mind 
about what you're going to do in this issue. Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, right? Not what I desire, not what is the common opinion, not what everybody thinks should be done, right? I could command you to do what's right. I could make you do what is fitting. Yet, for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged. So I'm. Let me just let me just appeal to you as much as I can, uh, based upon the abuse that I've taken for the church, the one who's been shipwrecked and starved and stoned to death and beaten and whipped and chained and you know that guy, you know who's barely able to read right now as I write in giant letters to you, Philemon. You know, if you could please consider my aged circumstances and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I am writing to you from prison, right? And it's not like prison today. It's not. Most Roman prisons, if you didn't know someone on the outside, you were going to starve to death. They didn't feed their prisoners. You're in prison. That's your fault. I mean, their job is to keep you locked up. Yeah, if someone brings you food, then great. Your circumstances were dire. Right? When, when this is Paul's first imprisonment, the Mamertine prison where he ends up ultimately, we've talked about this before, um, there are documented occasions where from the human waste and decomposing corpses, of dead prisoners, when they opened the dungeon, the gas that came out on, on several occasions, it was documented, it killed the guards that were there opening the, the dungeon, and in other occasions it simply knocked them out and sickened them. You know, the, the, the lack of oxygen, you just open it up and gaseous fume hits them and they drop right where they are. That's where Paul was in prison. Prison is not, you know, cable television versus not cable television. It was brutal what he was experiencing. So, you know, Philemon, if I can appeal to you on a personal level as a guy who's in prison for preaching the gospel, you know, suffering immensely, I appeal to you for my son, my son, Onesimus. And it must have been a shock for, for Philemon to get to that name. Just what? Right? Onesimus did not leave town as a Christian. He didn't leave town as part of the body of Christ. Now Paul's writing back and saying, this is my son. Onesimus. Uh, to put it in context here, right, <clears throat> the name, I wish that the King James scholars had actually translated the name Onesimus as profitable, because that's what it means by definition. And Paul does a nice play on words uh, as we move forward here. So, my son, Onesimus, other words, Profitable, whom I have begotten while in chains. Here I am in prison, <coughs> and I was able to lead Onesimus to Christ. I've literally birthed him into the kingdom. 
remarkable statement. And then here's where it applies. Who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. This is his name. Where it's translated profitable, he's literally, if we were to, I don't know how it would be translated, who was once un-Onesimus to you, but is now Onesimus to you, right? He was once unprofitable to you. He is now profitable to you. He, he, he's, you know, it's almost like Paul is saying, you know, could that possibly be a coincidence, Philemon? That this man's name is profitable in these circumstances. And just so we're aware, some of us have studied this enough to know, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Paul writing to the church at Colossae as he sends the letter to them, says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you, all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstance and comfort your hearts with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. Onesimus was so actively involved in Paul's ministry that Upon this return, he actually was part of delivering the, the letter to the Colossians, which we read today. He was actively involved in Paul's ministry and the outreach to the other churches. So it isn't just, what do we say, a jailhouse conversion, right? This man's heart was sincerely changed in this process. So back to uh, where we are in Philemon. Uh, verse 12, I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. Uh, I wish I could, you know, give you my heart in this matter. He's sort of saying, but that's my heart. Whom I wished to keep with me. He's so profitable that I could have kept him here and he would have done me such good. This, this guy was so involved in what I was doing. That on your behalf, he might minister to me. I could have kept him. When I found out that he belonged to you, Philemon, I already knew who you were. You're this astounding Christian who does so much for the body of Christ. And I was thinking I could keep Onesimus here on your behalf. And you would have received reward uh, from the Lord for my having uh, kept him in this situation. If, if you're thinking like, uh, how would that be? I mean, this this is a servant who belongs to another man. Paul's actually referencing Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. So the law of Israel is recorded there, and Paul is reminding him that Deuteronomy 23, verse 15 says, you shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. So the Jews had a law 
that if someone from outside their country, a foreigner, escapes from his master, who's a pagan and cruel and vindictive and makes it into Israel because they were slaves to Egypt and lived under that burden, they're to have a tender, merciful heart and to accept them into their midst and even defend them. No, this, this, this one has, by God's hand, escaped your slavery and is now here in our midst, and we're going to protect him and allow him to build a life for himself. Now, that's not entirely what Paul is saying, right? Because God is equitable, and Onesimus has apparently stolen. He didn't just escape bondage or slavery, and under Roman law, 60 million slaves in Rome, right? Massive, huge slave force. And, and slavery was for so many different reasons. It could be a sentence of, of imprisonment to wreak justification. It could be because of debt. Someone sold themselves into slavery. They could have been taken captive in war by the Roman Empire, the list is long for the reasons why someone could have ended up in slavery in Rome. But Paul is putting the angle on this to a fellow believer who knows Jewish law, saying, you know, as believers, it is right and proper that he could have stayed with me. I could have kept him here. He was a great benefit to me. He's been converted to our faith. But, I didn't want to do that because as a believer, he's going to talk about it. And you being a believer, we need to reconcile this relationship first. We need to fix this relationship between the two of you first. So you know, I could have kept him behalf of you that he would minister to me in my chains for the gospel, right? Tags the end of it with my imprisonment and preaching the word of God. You know, that just happens to be why I'm here. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Again, that same mindset of, I don't want to take advantage of anybody. I could insist this. Look at verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. You know, you got to stop and think about this, Philemon. Maybe this was God's intention all along. I mean, what are the odds? Paul at least knows Philemon and is acquainted. Onesimus flees, ends up in the company of Paul, and is converted to the faith in the process. Now Paul's sending him back. Paul needs, Philemon needs, Onesimus needs Philemon to consider the fact that God is in this mix. This, this is probably the providential hand of God all along the way. Onesimus went out the door and took whatever he took from you and you were, you know, mad and upset and, you know, looking to take legal action and now I'm sending him back and he's a believer. He was unprofitable, and now he's profitable. Maybe the whole reason was part of God's plan. 
no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You can't look at these things strictly from an earthly perspective. That's a, that's a great deal of advice right there, isn't it? We, we view things through an earthly lens so often. You know, get your spiritual goggles on. You know, look at things, you know, a little bit differently. Let your, you know, vision take on the Lord's vision. Have, have you guys had the opportunity? Um, YouTube has a series of videos of uh, people who are colorblind and uh, they are given uh, chromatic glasses and they see color for the first time and, and the reactions it is it's heart-wrenching to watch people put these glasses on and have that realization of this is what color is this is what your face looks like that is what you know our yard our car are they they have no idea you need to put spiritual lenses on and view things in a way that's something other than earthly. We, 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 we were wronged by people. They've burned us. They've ripped us off. They've done something terrible, and we want blood. We, we want to be paid back. We want reconciliation. We want the balance set to the scales. And the Lord, what does he tell us, right? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I, I point out to people when the Lord says, I will repay. Because we're so earthly, we sort of sit up emotionally on the edge of our seat and go, yeah, pay them back. Well, if you know the heart of God, then what you're going to discover is he's actually saying like, easy fella. <laughs> I'll take care of balancing the scales, right? I will remove from their account what is owed to you. And I will place in your account what is owed to you. You'll, you'll get what you're supposed to get. And they'll get what they're supposed to get. In our sinfulness, we always have the incorrect balance. We go way too far. Right? We think, yeah, they got to get exactly what's coming to them. If you shut your mouth and listen, the Lord's saying, do you want exactly what's coming to you? Because I surely do not want what's supposed to be coming to me. I do not. I want mercy. <laughs> I want grace. Right? I do not want justice. When someone's wronged me, that's what I scream. I want justice. But when I'm before the judge, all I can do is say mercy, grace, please, kindness, forgiveness. That's what I want. God wants to forgive. You know, this is why in the Old Testament the Lord had to say, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so many people in the world today view that as, oh, vengeful God. No, that was God putting limits on their behavior, right? Get in a fight with somebody, whack, they knock your tooth out. 
filled with rage and vengeance to go to their house the next day, kill all their livestock, burn their house to the ground. God's like, no. <laughs> you had a tooth knocked out. The worst you can do is knock their tooth out. He's setting limits to balancing the scales. He's not saying, he's not saying, if you've had your tooth knocked out, you march right over there and you knock their tooth out. Right? Even in the Old Testament, he's giving opportunity, forgiveness, and grace. And then in the New Testament, Jesus says, right, turn the other cheek. You can, you can let it go. Right? You know, you, you cannot burn their house down. Right? You cannot go over there and murder them because they knocked your tooth out. The farthest you can go is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And if you want to live under the grace and mercy of God, you can also turn the other cheek. You can let things go, which is what Paul is saying right here. Verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. You know, is there money? Was there possessions? Was there pride, injury of heart? What, what was it? Right? Did he push you down in the mud <laughs> as he ran out the door? You know, what, what was it? Does this man owe you something, you know, that you were shamed? He's the slave. You were the master. And, and he did something that, you know, everyone around is now speaking of how you need to go. Right. Doesn't that egg us on? You need to go. You need to go hunt Onesimus down. Philemon, that guy was, you know, he owes you. You can't just let this go. What are the other slaves going to think? Paul is saying, put that on my account. Verse 19, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. No one's putting words in my mouth. I'll pay his debt. And then look at this. Not to mention that you owe me even your own self besides. Paul's literally saying, how was it that you came to know the Lord, Philemon? Weren't you a filthy, rotten sinner condemned to hell? And I shared the gospel for, with you and you raised your hand and prayed the prayer. I seem to remember you coming forward at an altar call. And receiving Christ under my teaching. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides I won't bring it up I'm not going to rub it in your face I won't bring it you know into the discussion but but I did lead you to the Lord just saying so you know quite a statement on Paul's part yes brother let me have joy from you in the Lord refresh my heart in the Lord you know you got to look back right there are people that ministered to you along the way. There are people who are, I say that, and they are the top name in your life. Right? There are others who've come along and ministered. But when you talk about, like, who brought you to the Lord? 
And who first fed you and taught you and caused you to grow? That's a precious name in your foundation. And if they are looking you in the face and saying, ah, for the sake of Christ in this situation, could you please hear what I'm saying? It's time to listen to that, right? You can't look at their shortcomings, right? Because you've got shortcomings. You've come to realize along the way everybody's human. What you've got to look at is the Lord put that person in my life when I was primed to receive the Lord. And I surrendered my life to Christ under that person's watch. And now they're asking me to be mature in this situation. As much as it might go against our flesh. It's time to listen when those challenges are put forward. It's time to pay attention. Right? Because if the Lord orchestrated those circumstances and put your ready heart in their environment to receive, then guess what? He's putting you back in that environment right now to listen to what they have to say. God is using that moment to speak to you. Maybe he's been saying to you time and again how you need to behave and how you need to grow and what needs to go on. And you weren't listening, so he's dragged you back into the presence of that person who you most respect and said, what if this guy says it to you? What if this gal says it to you? You wouldn't listen when so-and-so, and you wouldn't listen when so-and-so, but how about now? You've got to hear God's voice in that. You've got to hear God's voice and what he's saying to your heart in the moment. Verse 21, the confident sale. I don't know if you've ever you know, had a salesman treat you this way. <laughs> the positive affirmation in the statement. Having confidence. In your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. I know you're going to do everything I'm saying. In fact, I know you're going to do more than what I'm presently saying. You're not only going to buy this car. <laughs> you're also going to, you know, I don't know what. Take it as is. You know, I'm not going to change the oil. I'm not going to put new tires on it. You're going to take it just like that. I know this is that this is that level of sale. I know you're going to do what I'm saying, but meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. Oh, you thought I was over the top already. I'm also going to be in town soon, and I'm going to need a place to stay. So if you could make arrangements for that, that would be great. You don't talk to people like this unless you have this relationship with them, do you? This is one of the telltale signs that Paul and Philemon actually have this level of relationship, right? Which may be why Onesimus sought out Paul. Onesimus may have known Paul has a relationship with Philemon. I'm getting boxed in here, and I know I need to go back home, but I can't just go back home like this. I bet, I bet Onesimus was not thinking, I should become a Christian. I think he was probably thinking, Paul is a close friend of Philemon. 
I should go talk to him. I know where he is. And he might be able to smooth things over for me. And in the whole discussion, Paul is saying, you know, your real problem is you don't know the Lord. You really need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's why you've done the stupid things you've done and ended up in this mess. According to Roman law, the minimum that Philemon could do right now, the minimum was brand Onesimus' forehead with an F for fugitive. He would bear that mark upon his forehead for the rest of his life. They were allowed to kill their slaves. They were allowed to mutilate, dismember their slaves, gouge out their eyes, and many of their masters did. Roman history records an occasion where the emperor was present when a fugitive slave was returned to his master, and it occurred during a large gathering of that very wealthy man's friends, and he threw the slave into a pool that was filled with lamprey eels, and the eels killed him, to everyone's shock and horror. Totally within the bounds of the law. I, I say all of that not for the shock value, but here that we understand the level of grace that Paul is asking Philemon to give out here. Give him your brotherhood. Let this debt go. I'm confident that you're going to do this. Prepare a room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greet you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Amen. When Paul says to Philemon, I'm sure you're going to forgive him for everything that he's done. That means he can come home and return to being a slave without any repercussions. That would be enough. But Paul says, I'm confident that you're going to do more than that. What more could be done than that? He could be set free. I think that that's what Paul is saying to him. And therein is the ultimate example for every one of us. Because Jesus gave us that parable of the man who owed his master an insurmountable debt. And when he was brought in front of the master, the master, he pleaded for forgiveness. And the master forgave him his debt. And that servant left and found a fellow servant who owed him a very small sum of money. And he attacked that man and beat him and choked him and had him thrown in prison and demanded that his debt be paid. And he refused to let him out until his debt was paid. Fellow servants witnessed that and went to the master. The master was enraged and brought the man who owed the original insurmountable debt back and said, how could you behave this way? 
You had a debt you were never going to be capable of paying, and I forgave that. And you went out and tried to choke the life out of your fellow servant over a minor debt. And so it is in the kingdom with forgiveness. And we do that. We were destined for hell. Insurmountable debt. We could never pay ourselves. And we turn around and our brother or sister in the Lord offends us and we choke the life out of them. With bitterness, anger, resentment, spite, malice. Grace is what we're called to. Grace is what the Lord extended to us. And it's what the Lord calls us to do. You got to know Onesimus in your life. You got to figure out how to not only forgive them of their debt, but how to also set them free and make them equal to yourself. That they would have the same gracious status in your eyes that you have with Christ. Grace. Forgiveness, that's the character of our Heavenly Father, and that's what's reflected in this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. I pray that if any of us has that heart that needs to be corrected by this message, we would hear it, and we'd be willing to be forgiving as the Lord would call us to. Amen.